My fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. How's it going, boss? How's New York? It's good. It's pretty fun. I, I spent the afternoon with Alex Thorne, got some lunch, was stopped in at the Galaxy HQ. Pretty massive, but it was cool. Very cool. You are, you're going to make your way to PubKey at some point today? or I was there last night, dude. It was a cool vibe. Was hanging out with Drew, Drew Armstrong and a few of those other guys. I didn't really expect to walk into a bar of Bitcoiners, so it was cool. Yeah, man. It's a solid place. I'm a big fan. Anyone in the audience, if you ever find yourself in New York City, you got to check out PubKey. It's a lightly Bitcoin-themed bar, very tasteful. If you weren't a Bitcoiner, you could go in and you know just be a dive bar with some cool art. CK, you finally back? You, you in Nashville? Finally back in Nashville. Feels good to be back stateside. Nice. Yeah, I was going to... I just sent Justin a DM to see if he's getting in here, but Dylan, have you talked to him? I haven't talked to him today. I have not, but he said he confirmed. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> he said he was in and we sent the Cal invite. So I can ping him. I can give him a text. If not, we can just riff and maybe just like have some people in the audience. I'm down for whatever. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be talking Bitcoin and markets, you know, nothing too crazy, but it'd be great to have Preston if he can show. Absolutely. We're going to be talking Bitcoin. So, I mean, I, Dylan, I don't know if you want to talk through kind of recent price action or anything like that, or maybe touch on, on the article you just dropped on Bitcoin Magazine Pro about how you don't expect a soft landing. But yeah, I mean, excited for uh, for Preston to join. We're still a little early here, so not stressing too much. But ultimately, you know, if you want to meet Preston, if you want to meet Dylan, if you want to meet a lot of amazing Bitcoiners in the audience right now, Bitcoin 2023 is the best place to do it. So 200, or sorry, 105 days away. So it, it's approaching very quickly here and tons of Bitcoiners have already purchased their tickets are going to be there. So really exciting stuff and some big announcements coming up as well as ticket prices going up next week. So get the tickets while they're cheap. Definitely encourage that. But yeah, Dylan, Bitcoin price, the economy, some pretty big topics here. I don't know if you want to, you know, just kind of jump into what you're seeing while Preston has some more time. Yeah, for sure. And I think in regards to the recent article we dropped, we put out in that FOMC primer, the 25 basis point hike was expected. I think the really interesting thing here, and our views have evolved a little bit over the last few months, is that I think one of the things that we were a little bit directionally wrong on was the time that this, this cycle would take in the sense that we thought, you know, like COVID obviously, and this rate height, this rate height cycle was pretty different, is pretty different than those previously that we've seen. And just this kind of economic cycle in general, just being juiced with so much stimulus and this all encompassing duration bubble was just, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than anything we've seen. So we kind of expected that the whole thing to deflate a little bit sooner, you know, surprisingly, and we will admit this, that it's been 
you know, the consumer and the nominal economy, not in real terms, but the nominal economy has been and continues to be pretty, pretty hot. So markets are now kind of pricing in somewhat of like a disinflationary soft landing. And so, you know, the, the paradox is that assets, risk assets are chasing this probability pretty hard, this kind of rate tail event. And so, you know, the soft landing Goldilocks period for risk assets, financial assets is actively being priced in. And that actually, in our view, in my view, at least somewhat reduces the chance of inflation abating back to 2%. And so I think you know, we could have another month or even quarter of, you know, up only meme, memes, meme coins and chip codes to the moon, right? If you just look at everything today, the NASDAQ was up at 1.4%, Meta up 30, you know, Carvana, the, the stock that was down 99.9% was, you know, opened the day limit up. Some of these things are just about, you know, shorts getting blown out into, you know, no sell side liquidity. But I think, you know, these financial assets mooning, China reopening, some of this stuff is actually probably going to serve as a, a tailwind for inflation to not be transitory or for this disinflationary period to kind of reaccelerate upwards back to an increasing inflation rate. And so I think that's the real, I think that's, you know, potentially over the, you know, short to medium term, maybe not short to medium term, but the medium term, the remaining bear case is that everything being priced in right now in equities land is pricing in a kind of a, a soft landing scenario. And that, that scenario being priced in could, you know, in turn have uh, inflation rear its ugly head. And in turn, that could be, you know, we could see another leg lower in bonds and uh, another repricing. So, you know, in Bitcoin terms, we put out an article about a week ago saying that, you know, from a Bitcoin native cycle perspective, we've seen the capitulation. It's really hard to imagine a forced selling scenario, you know, equal to or greater than what we saw in 2022. It's really hard to imagine that just from, you know, we can talk all the on-chain or derivative data, and we love to look at that and quantify that. Uh, But you know, still at the same time, I think people should just kind of put this into context that it's not a Bitcoin specific rally here. This is everything going up. This is about the denominator. And this is about, you know, a risk on rally happening across really everything that got pummeled in 2022. So I think the rally could have some legs, you know, we'll see. But uh, yeah, I don't really expect an up only 2023. I think we got some chop, you know, vicious trend in both ways. So that's kind of my, my you know, near term thoughts on what's happening. I just did FedWatch with Ansel, and he's kind of predicting a little bit of chop, but he's definitely predicting pretty bullish 2023. We're going to have to get you back on the show to, to give a conflicting opinion and hash that out. I also saw Joe, you know, Joe Colasarius in the audience do a thumbs down. So I'm sure there's some great analysts in the audience that, you know, potentially have some thoughts. So feel free to request to come on and, you know, kind of give a counterpoint or perspective, if you will. Dylan, you know, when you're talking about chop and a tough time, like what does that mean for the Fed? You know, obviously the smallest rate increase since they started yesterday, you know, will they pivot? Will they burn this thing to the ground? Like some people are saying, you know, what are you kind of seeing here? Yeah, I think interestingly enough, you know, like that 25 basis point rate hike was already, you know, priced in into the futures markets, into rate markets, you know, well beforehand. So, uh, and I was traveling during the FOMC meeting, but it's kind of funny just how gamified everything is in, in financial markets. Like people are interpreting, you know, one word, the tone of Powell's voice or the fact that he said that financial conditions have tightened dramatically in over the last year as financial conditions were the most loose they've been in a year. And so markets heard that and, you know, just up only, right? They're saying, oh, Powell's saying, you know, financial conditions are tight and when actually they're loosening. And so, you know, I think in terms of the pivot, right, like everyone's saying when pivot, I think honestly, the not the risk, but the higher probability over 2023 and maybe early 2024 is a pivot to higher rates, actually, to, to not to start cutting rates, but potentially due to, a, you know, another inflationary spike upwards or just, you know, a persistent 5% inflation rate on a year over year basis. I could imagine another set of rate hikes that aren't currently priced into the curve. The market generally thinks that a cutting cycle, an easing cycle is going to happen early 24. So I think, you know, if that kind of, if that part of the curve gets repriced higher, it certainly wouldn't be great, extremely bullish for assets. You know, we've talked about this a lot with Dr. Jeff, shout out Jeff in the audience, where, you know, when you see the pausing of these cycles, of these tightening cycles, assets really rip. And then actually when the first cut comes, not because the cut itself, the rate cut itself is bullish or bearish, but when you see that first cut come, you usually see stocks get, you know, pretty ugly. And that's because they cut when conditions are worsening. And so, you know, we haven't even started to really see that yet. The data is actually pretty robust. 
So I don't know if Preston is going to show up today, unfortunately, but, you know, happy to open it up. If we want to get Jeff, Joe Calisere, Matthew Pine, really anyone in the audience would love to just kind of, you know, open the room and just kind of have a live debate here or not a debate, but, you know, a think tank if we want to go that route. Hey, Joe, and I invited a few people up. Uh, so hopefully they, they accept and join. But while we're waiting, I was wondering, so, you know, in terms of like Bitcoin native metrics, it seems like we've seen the capitulation stage and now it's, you know, we're past that and the worst is behind us. But like, how does that actually play into the Fed policy and liquidity? Because like Bitcoin typically is very correlated to liquidity. And so I'm wondering, like, how much do the four year cycles play into this and how much is this just like the Fed's game? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think that's, you know, that's the question that everybody wants to know. I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, trying to use a multifaceted approach to analysis is, uh, you know, has served us well in the past. So like, like we said, you know, the, the on-chain stuff and not so much the on-chain stuff, but the Bitcoin native cycle that everyone likes to, to refer to, that has been a reality for almost its entire existence, you know, happens because of market forces and human psychology. But this all happened during a period of, you know, Fed, QE, unlimited, zero interest rate policy. So while we have seen the capitulation phase already occur, and could it certainly, you know, could there be a, another downturn in the coming month or quarter? Sure. But just in terms of the breadth of the move and just how dramatic it was and volatile to the downside, it's hard to see that occur again, at least in the short term, in the medium term. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people conflate that already having happened, being behind us with the fact that, you know, history says it's up only after. And really we could, you know, just see a Bitcoin range for a while. And that can mean 30K, that can mean 40K. Like, you know, I'm not saying it, Bitcoin's not going to go up. I'm just saying that, you know, because of, you know, Bitcoin's history, right, it crashed to whatever it did in 2014. And then from 2016 to 2017, you know, 24 months straight, it was up only. I think, you know, Bitcoin is obviously an order of magnitude larger at this point. The flows that it will take to become a trillion dollar, two trillion dollar asset or a lot more in an environment where, Liquidity is tightening despite, you know, the recent rally and really every risk on asset, every long duration asset. I think that's going to be, you know, tough to replicate in relative terms just because of the absolute size of the market. I, I firmly believe Bitcoin will smash all time highs eventually, but I, and maybe this will come back to bite me in the ass and, you know, hopefully someone screen clips this later in the year if I'm wrong, but I don't think Bitcoin makes a new high this year. And that, you know, if anyone disagrees, I'd love to, to hear the opposite side of it. Yeah, I mean, going back to the four-year cycles, like it wouldn't make sense for Bitcoin to make a high this year, even if conditions might be different from the Fed. So I guess like, you know, the next question would be around like recession and thinking about a greater, longer downturn in equity markets. And like, do we have an idea of how Bitcoin might behave? How does it currently behave? Does it track with like the digital gold narrative or is it more with like beta stocks? And could you just speak more to that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we covered a bunch. I mean, this is the only reason, not the only reason, but as a Bitcoin focused publication, like we cover equities and bonds and everything else, you know, for better or worse, it is all one trade essentially. And while, you know, Bitcoin or any other asset can gain in relative terms, against that liquidity tide per se, it's really tough. And you really don't see an extended period of time where one asset kind of goes counter trend to equity market beta, at least a, you know, a risk asset. And maybe you think Bitcoin isn't a risk asset, but with a USD denomination, USD denominator and in global financial markets, you know, that's kind of determining the move. So like, I don't really see a world where equities are going limit down or equities are downtrending and Bitcoin is in a raging bull market. I just don't see that, unfortunately. But the, I mean, the good news is just due to the state of the monetary system, the state of the debt dynamics on a long enough time frame, equity indices and really every other financial asset needs to go up and appreciate in nominal terms to keep this thing glued together. So it's a matter of, it's not a matter of if, but when, and you know, I believe Bitcoin's here to stay. So yeah, I, I mean, I honestly, I'm kind of bearish on the narrative that Bitcoin will for an extended period of time, decouple from everything else. I honestly think it will be correlated with equity indices, you know, on like, say, a one month or three month moving average over the next decade. I don't think, you know, significant decoupling will happen. But honestly, that's, in my view, that's not bearish. I think that's bullish. I think Bitcoin just kind of siphons some of that excess liquidity and is just kind of the, you know, pure form of, 
you know, everybody says it was an inflation hedge, you know, the monetary debasement hedge, maybe that's a meme, but I think that's, you know, the most pure form of monetary premium. That's the bull case. And that could be, you know, 10 trillion, even greater assets. So yeah, I think the correlation is here to stay. I mean, if you pull up a comparison of like the high beta ETF divided by the low volatility ETF for equities, so like high beta stocks divided by low beta stocks and look at the performance and then look at the Bitcoin price chart. It's the same chart. And like, you know, maybe correlation isn't causation. I agree with that. But it's just telling you that, you know, Bitcoin is a beta asset on global liquidity, which is fine, which is like, obviously there's way more stuff happening. There's lightning, there's development, there's usage, there's adoption. I'm not saying there isn't. But from a finan- from a financial asset performance standpoint, we, sh- you know, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking at the current moment, it's something other than, you know, a play on the liquidity of global markets, because I think that's how market participants are treating it, rightfully or wrongfully. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, I think it's been almost 18 months with extremely high correlation with the NASDAQ. And there's nothing wrong, you know, in the short term with Bitcoin acting like that. Can you kind of like walk through like in more detail why you think that's like a feature and then, you know, what it, would it take for Bitcoin to kind of shake that correlation off? Is it just strictly developments in the ecosystem continuing or is it something bigger than that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just every asset in the world is flows. If you strip away all of the narrative and all of the you know fundamentals and you know your opinion on it, it's just everything is flows, marginal buyer, marginal seller and Bitcoin and to, to a greater extent, crypto, which I fundamentally believe, you know, is 99.99% worthless, you know, speculation, lotto gambling, which is fine. Some people love gambling, but like, it's all just right. It's, why is it all just beta? Like the entire crypto ecosystem is beta to Bitcoin. Well, why? Well, it's all flows. And these things are relatively more inelastic on the supply side and more volatile. So, you know, Bitcoin's up 1% and shitcoin XYZ is up 5%. Does that mean it's like a better asset? No, it's just relatively more liquid. Bitcoin is just relatively more liquid compared to, you know, the global equity index or, you know, the S&P 500 or something. Um, so it's all just a flow standpoint. And because of, you know, that USD denomination, because of that global liquidity tide, we always refer to those flows are often correlated with each other for, you know, say equity indices and, and Bitcoin, if you want to compare the two. So, you know, what would it take for a period of sustained decoupling? Well, to be honest, I find it hard to imagine, but I think momentary, you know, periods of decoupling whether it's due to a short squeeze or, you know, some big player coming in, stepping in and entering a position or, you know, selling or whatever it is, like those momentary periods of decoupling can happen and will happen. We saw them in the second stage of the, you know, the double bubble in 2021, right? It was like the dollar was up, volatility was up, equities are down and Bitcoin had a 10% day. Um, so that's certainly possible, right? Like, it, 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 you know, it can happen. You know, in hindsight, it was Alameda just running a Ponzi, but it was flows nevertheless, right? So I think it can happen. I just, I, I kind of, when I envision the bull case, I envision Bitcoin as, you know, an order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude bigger than it is today, like the hyper bull case, while being correlated with, you know, the equity indice. Because, you know, passive allocators, the same way that, you know, there's 500 people in the space that DCA Bitcoin, well, there's 50 million citizens in the US that passively allocate to the S&P 500, right? So like, that's why there's, there is a correlation and will be in, in my view. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely do think that Bitcoin has the potential to become the key asset that is passively allocated to, and that potentially could be a flipping point. But I tend to think that as the Bitcoin ecosystem can, you know, continues to grow and more Bitcoin is needed to operate on the Bitcoin ecosystem, less of like that, that marginal float is going to affect, is going to affect the price. But you know, that that's, it's a pretty unnuanced opinion here, but I'm kind of curious, like how, like something different between Bitcoin and I guess it maybe makes it similar to a commodity, but different than in equity is that it kind of has this ecosystem being built on top of it. Yeah. You know, I like, like, what do you mean? The, like the financialization of it, like the, or like the lightning and all that development. Yeah. I mean, I think everything that's being built on the ecosystem, on the platform, on the network. Yeah. I kind of, 
you know, distill it all down to just being like a form of money in a way, whether it's collateral or lightning. And it's all just, you know, similar. It's not just like, you know, buying and selling Bitcoin is smashing buy on Coinbase, but it's also sending 100 sats on Noster to, you know, like you're selling Satoshis when you send someone lightning on Noster, right? So I, I think it's just all kind of the same idea, just extrapolated to a much larger, smaller extent. By the way, this is completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but Noster is pretty exciting. I think that, you know, that gives me, and I, I wasn't like a, an early Bitcoin OG, I'm pretty young, but it gives me like early Bitcoin vibe days if I was there to experience it. It's pretty cool. The people who are actually there in the early Bitcoin days, you know, tend to agree with that sentiment. I see some heavy Noster users hanging out here in this Twitter spaces as well. Craig, do you have any kind of questions along this line? I wanted, if not, I wanted to talk about the BM Pro article that got dropped on the 30th of last month. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analyst Dylan LeClaire Dr. Jeff Ross and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Tomorrow, BM Pro is releasing an analysis on Bitcoin adoption. So Dylan, you brought up coin using a Bitcoin user is someone who like not only just buys $10 worth on Coinbase, but is also like using Lightning or using Noster and sending Bitcoin over Lightning using Noster. And so we have this piece coming out tomorrow that kind of takes a deeper dive into some of those numbers. And it's it's pretty, when you look at it, those like heavy users is what we call them. It's very, there's very few users, like possibly in the low millions at most. And so I, I'm wondering like, how does Bitcoin adoption play into the decoupling and like, is that something that we might be surprised by? Like Parker Lewis has that has a series of pieces called Gradually Then Suddenly. So like if there's a significant adoption, would that affect the decoupling from like the traditional equities markets? Yeah, yeah, Sam's putting this report together. He's killing it. He's been working away on this kind of throwing a ton of different data together from various sources. You'll often hear, you know, surveys about 100 million or x million 100 million bitcoin users worldwide personally in my view i think a lot of that's overstated so you know depending on how you interpret that can be bullish or bearish could be bullish in the sense that like we are still very early if you know the thesis is directionally correct and bitcoin is to be some form of global money which it already is in my view it's just not widely understood or distributed yet but yeah it's you know i don't think there's actually 100 million Bitcoin power, you know, from a Western perspective, it's just kind of a speculative asset, like we're referring to. The real exciting thing is that there's increasingly with the proliferation of lightning and, you know, you know, Bitcoin adoption in these developing emerging markets, there's potentially much, much more users coming through the pipe. So I think Sam, Sam did a really good job of putting a bunch of data together that will be released tomorrow. I didn't have too much of a hand in it, but yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, I think my question is more around like how much of that potential adoption, how will that affect a decoupling from equities? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just being a bear. I just don't, <laughs> I just think that the correlation will remain. It's just, it's like all, like if you think about what you're doing when you buy Bitcoin and never sell it, like all you're doing is you're just constraining that free float of supply. But what's the price at the current moment? The price is just a function of supply and demand. It's the marginal seller versus the marginal buyer at the current moment. 
right? So if you're never selling, you're never selling your Bitcoin. You're just like buy Bitcoin and hold it. All you're doing is constraining the float and making it more supply and elastic. So when there's net buying, that's obviously great, right? When there's no sellers and a, you know, a bunch of marginal buying flow, the price skyrockets, you know, conversely, like, and this is where I will be the first to say, like, was bullish near the highs in 2021? Why? Well, the on-chain stuff, the supply and elasticity of Bitcoin looked and was extremely strong. There was very few marginal sellers compared to previous cycles. Like we weren't seeing coins exchanging hands at crazy rates, like you would see at traditional Bitcoin tops. It was a very kind of confounding experience for, as, a, as an analyst, because, you know, the macro looked we like looked a little weird. But the Bitcoin supply side dynamics looked extremely strong and we just rebroke the 64,000 all-time high after crashing in the summer. And, you know, Bitcoin was, you know, traded to 69K ultimately and crashed. But how did it crash if like no coins were exchanging hands and supply was so tightly held? Well, it was because, you know, supply is very inelastic. And even though really like only a couple of million coins changed hands and the rest were being hodled by, you know, hodlers, the price still fell 80% or 75% or whatever it may be. So, you know, that supply and elasticity, I think the key point is that, you know, and the hodlers, like, much respect, I've, you know, been hodling portion of my stack since I first bought Bitcoin in a price agnostic way. But what you're doing, like that, that you're ultimately, you're just kind of contributing for better or for worse, and oftentimes for better to the supply and elasticity of it. Right? So, so when someone comes in with a bunch of money to buy it, and there's no sellers, the price has to skyrocket. It's by a very function of, of how markets work. So, you know, more, more like more increased adoption, whether it's hodlers or users, I think it's, you know, the story is still the same. It's 21 million Bitcoin and, you know, more additional do- adopters will obviously increase that exchange rate. But on a tick by tick basis, I think in 10 years from now, if you open up a chart of, you know, that's a P500 index, the dollar index against other fiat currencies and the Bitcoin chart, I think they're going to trade in tandem on a you know minute by minute, five minute, 10 minute basis, or I guess the dollar would be inversely correlated w- with those things. So yeah, I like, that's kind of how I feel about the decoupling. I just, I don't, I think it's just kind of maybe not a wrong narrative to pursue, um, but maybe it's like the, the wrong battle. Like Bitcoin could be correlated with these things and still be extremely massive. And honestly, it'd probably be a benefit if it was correlated with these things. You know, I prefer to not be inversely correlated to risk assets when risk assets pump forever. I think it's just the wrong not the wrong convo, but like the wrong way to look at it. We should actually really want to be correlated with the risk assets. We should really want to monetize and find our way like Bitcoin to be placed on the balance sheet of every single person and institution in the world. And if if that's the goal, and if that actually materializes, then the correlation will be extremely strong. Because why do you sell? Why do you sell any asset? Like why are things correlated to everything, you know, correlation to one during a downturn, during a you know, risk off, during a liquidity crunch? Well, it's, you know, there's this global, massive global short position of a hundred trillion plus dollars or whatever the figures are off balance sheet. And when you have to meet that margin call, when you have to meet your debts, when you have to meet that short position, you sell anything and everything to cover it and to get those dollars and pay down your debts. So you sell your Bitcoin, you sell your equities, you sell your you know, real estate, which is a lot slower. You sell literally anything you can. Even sometimes you sell your bonds which in, in you know, portfolio theory says it should go the other way. But that's why everything's correlated to one you know, during a bloody equities day. It doesn't matter that Amazon is, you know, has better fundamentals than you know, Blockbuster. It doesn't matter. It's just they're selling because of the USD denominator. I think it's just the wrong conversation. I don't know if that, like, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, I think okay. it definitely, I was going to say, I think it definitely makes sense. And I mean we've seen the dollar ripping up, right? And that has really hurt Bitcoin. And, you know, in the last few weeks, as Bitcoin's been making its run, you know, we've also seen the dollar kind of take a tumble against other fiat currencies. So, you know, we've definitely see the dollar being a huge, you know, element to what Bitcoin does price wise. I'm kind of curious, you know, you know, you're saying that Bitcoin is really correlated with these assets and it's a structural thing. Something that makes Bitcoin different is the fact that it's actually, in many cases, more liquid than a lot of these other assets and even getting more more liquid as we speak. And that's kind of made Bitcoin almost like an early mover. Uh, do you see Bitcoin as kind of like a leading indicator to the way the economy is going? Or are there any kind of key differences with other beta assets or beta stocks? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about Bitcoin as like, you know, almost like a 24-7 
risk off indicator or risk on indicator, right? Like, like, you know, everyone can, if you were in a market participant in 2020, when Bitcoin, you know, went minus 50% on a Sunday or Saturday or whatever it was like, that was certainly a fun experience. Fun is probably a nice way to put it. But that was during, you know, that was at the time when equities were going limit down every single day and CNBC was freaking out. And, you know, it was like circuit breaker at, you know, the first 30 seconds of trading for equities and Bitcoin was just doing its own thing, just absolutely decimating people on BitMEX or, you know, the other way around. I can't remember a specific time in particular, but like, you know, when Bitcoin is pumping on the weekends, um, oftentimes, right, you'll see like if Bitcoin pumps or dumps on a weekend, and then, you know, depending on what equities do, it often just will like retrace that move very quickly. And I think that just goes to show, you know, based on like our prior conversation, the last 20, 30 minutes, like the liquidity of the legacy indices is still very strong and dominant. But yeah, I think Bitcoin as kind of a leading indicator or, you know, a true market. Obviously, there's been a lot of things that's happened in, in the Bitcoin crypto world in the past few, you know, past maybe 24 months, or really, I mean, through its history, right, where we can see in hindsight, like, oh, whether that was a Ponzi or, you know, someone shorting Bitcoin they didn't have or, you know, all sorts of different shenanigans. With the blessing of hindsight, we can see like, oh, that makes sense. But still, even then, regardless of the reason, um, the price is the ultimate truth. And so, you know, this 24-7 global thing, you know, where it may not be dollar liquidity, but it's whatever the local exchange fiat currency is, it's trading, it is relatively liquid in every jurisdiction. So I think there is some merit to that. I think, you know, being the, whether it's a leading indicator or just another form of indicator of the strength of the underlying economy, I, you know, and potentially I think it'll be a leading indicator when that next, you know, funny money stimulus round happens. I don't think it's going to happen soon, but I wholeheartedly believe there will be another money printer go burr moment ahead for all of us. And I think Bitcoin is you know, going to really explode when it does happen, although probably not in 2023. Maybe it is. Let's talk about Money Printer Gober. You guys released a piece earlier this week about the higher for longer and the Fed pivot. Fed pivot. Um, you know, most people are were expecting the 0.25 percent increase, including you, and but also are pr- pricing in the market, the Fed going easing up on rates. And so, is that something that you think is going to happen? How do you think that's going to impact Bitcoin? And Yeah. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I've talked with a a lot of, you know, pretty well-distinguished hedge fund guys recently and that that have just absolutely killed it the last 24 months. And they talk about just kind of one of the things that they have in front of their desk at the top of their terminal. What they're watching is, is just a reprice of the duration higher, right? Like that second leg of and maybe it's wrong, right? Maybe this is just a risk that's just going to be kind of checked off and ignored because it wasn't, it didn't unfold. But that, that you know, the analogy of the 70s or, you know, Powell being Paul Volcker or Arthur Burns. And for those that aren't like too well-versed in, you know, Fed chairman history, Volcker was obviously the guy that, you know, rose, raised rates to 20% and stamped out inflation. Burns was the guy that kind of prematurely eased off the gas and inflation kind of reignited back in their face. And so I think there's a risk of that, right? where, you know, this thing is still piping hot. And by thing, I mean the global economy, U.S. economy. China just reopened. You know, we're not draining the SPR anymore. We can't do that again. Um, so so what does that mean for, you know, the year-over-year inflation rate? Well, you know, I think inflation is a lot stickier than, you know, maybe some people would like to believe. It is, you know, becoming somewhat entrenched in the minds of consumers. And, you know, the labor market is still extremely tight. So, you know, I think the 2% kind of disinflationary era that we all kind of were present for the last decade, I think that's over. And even if we do kind of hit that 2% arbitrary target again on a year-over-year basis, I don't think it remains there for long. And I could be wrong, but I think probably in that sense, if that is true, if that is a risk factor, you're going to see those the rates on the long end reprice higher because you know the rate market is pricing in a, a pivot in 2024, at least not a pivot, but an, uh, an easing, net easing. So if that doesn't unfold, then there's certainly going to be a, need to be a repricing of, of risk and the risk-free rate. So just something to watch for. I mean, I you know, am I trading Bitcoin based on the rates chart on a 30 minute basis? No, I'm not. But I'm, you know, act, like I'm actively increasing my dollar position. I'm actively increasing my Bitcoin position on an automated basis. So yeah, that's how I think of it. Just something to watch for. I don't think the, I don't think the worst of it has unfolded yet. Maybe for Bitcoin it has, you know, I very well could see 15,000 being the low. And, you know, if I didn't deploy everything, then that's fine. 
but I, I don't think we see just up only again without any pain being felt. I don't think that's that how this all plays out, but you know, it could be wrong. You don't uh, think we're going to have a super cycle? <laughs> no super cycle. Maybe we do have a super cycle. It's just up only forever. Dylan, at some point, you know, the S curve goes vertical, right? Yeah. That, when the S curve has gone vertical and we are in a super cycle, and at the moment everyone pro- proclaims it is a super cycle, by definition, we're going to drop 80%. That's just the prophecy. It's when everyone believes the market can't go down again and goes levered long, which will probably happen again. And then we all just will get dunked on by the dollar maxis. Can I, can you guys make me a co-host if possible? I don't know if it's possible to have a third co-host, but we should we should open the discussion up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we've been sending invites. Happy to jump off and make you the co-host. We did just to, while people are kind of, Oh, no, I removed him as co-host, and it seems like it disconnected him. <laughs> Rug. Sorry for rugging you, CK. It's all good. Well, I was going to say, while we're giving people a chance to jump on, we did recently drop the Bitcoin Magazine Pro dashboard. has a bunch of cool analytics that your team is kind of watching and things that you think are interesting. Any sort of like preview or kind of like summary of, what that dashboard is and where people can uh, could find it. Yeah, Sam Rule is a killer. You know, shout out to Sam. I, I'm sure people are, you know, if they're familiar with our work, they're familiar with Sam. But he's just a wizard. He made a really awesome dashboard that automatically updates, and it's just all Bitcoin native metrics that we use, like cyclically, right? So, so you know, tr- transparently, and this is in the drop, like, you know, I think like 17 out of the 20 or. 17 out of the 20 something of those are bullish on kind of a long-term cyclical perspective, just given the nature of what transpired over the last 12 months, 18 months. And so that, you know, that's not paying attention to rates or dollars or, you know, <laughs> the Fed fund hike. They, it's just looking at Bitcoin hodler dynamics. And so, you know, take that for what you will. But yeah, we were pretty excited about that. We're kind of just updating that to subscribers on a weekly basis. And, you know, we included some visuals as well. So we've been covering a lot of that for the, you know, the past year or two years, but now we've got it automated, just kind of feeding to subscribers. So we were pretty pumped about that. And Sam did a great job. Sam's a legend. Kind of going through some of the, uh, some of the metrics that you are watching another article by Sam, you pointed out, you know, four or five of these different, these different metrics that you're watching. One is the Euro dollar curve implied. Was it 3M Fed funds rate? You know, I'm not sure if you have any of that in front of you, but do you, do you kind of want to talk about some of these metrics that we're watching this week? Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to pin some to the nest and, and I, oh, there we go. Yeah. Here's one. And I pinned it to the top of the nest. It's not talking about the euro dollar curve, but I think one of the interesting things, and this is some great, great data by Tyco, who I was unfamiliar with prior to this chart, but they've done some good work. They've aggregated basically the, the kind of the order depth from, for all the various Bitcoin exchanges across stablecoin pairs. So this is dollars and tether, you know, maybe you say that's not valid or what, whatever, but it's just aggregating basically the liquidity and the percent of, you know, 2% into the order book. And basically, you know, despite this, you know, in, in the face of this recent move upwards, liquidity is back to kind of FTX collapse lows. So take that what, you know, for what you will, you know, I would just say, you know, be wary of market conditions in both ways. And, you know, I would expect volatility to continue. You know, Bitcoin acting as a stable coin like it did for a lot of the summer is probably not the norm, and especially if you look historically. So, you know, and I think this is rigs true for, you know, really like the rally we're seeing in everything. Um, there's just not much liquidity out there. And that really, like, you know, if you just look at historic bear markets, or the, you know, NASDAQ crash in 2000, or, you know, you can look at even like the 1929 bear market. It's characterized by just absolutely vicious, face-ripping, short-covering rallies. And everybody, like, just if you look back at the sentiment of the time, everybody calls for the start of the new bull market and the worst being over. So I'm not saying one way or another specifically, but just, you know, this data that we're looking at is kind of confirming that potential scenario of, okay, this is a very liquid market. We saw, you know, for the Bitcoin move specifically, it was the biggest short squeeze we've seen since July of 2021, right? Like, it was a mechanical move. It wasn't, like a ton of new money coming in. It was just shorts forcefully closing, which, you know, still translates to net buying, but you know, that can, these gains can be kind of given up just given the, the lack of real order book depth and liquidity on both sides. So kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier. I'm trying to look in my feed for some more charts to share. I don't have my laptop in front of me, unfortunately. Well, I got a question for you. 
Can you talk to us about the significance of the 200 weekly moving average? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, one of those kind of things that prior to this cycle was like a sacred Bitcoin truth, you know, Bitcoin had never broken below the all time high previously from the past cycle. It had never crossed below the 200 week moving average and it did both of those things. And so I'm not sure what that 200 week moving average is at, right? It's like, what is it like 25, 24? As of Monday, it was 24,764. Yeah. It's certainly interesting. I think it's just a psychology thing. More so like the 200 day is kind of this like for momentum and trend followers is somewhat significant. So I know, you know, we have a, the Bitcoin Magazine Pro, we have a fair amount of just kind of interested hodlers. And then we do have some kind of like active, more active risk managers as well. And so, you know, those moving average trend lines can, or maybe they don't, or maybe they do kind of maybe influence your decision to allocate or not. So I think it's something to watch for. I don't put too much weight into that either way. I mean, on a long enough time frame, Bitcoin's extremely cheap. And I, you know, I don't think it really necessarily matters whether it's 24-7 or, you know, 23-7. It'll be, if the thesis is correct, it'll be pretty damn cheap regardless. Yeah, I mean, any price that you can buy Bitcoin with fiat, in my opinion, is cheap. But, you know, obviously, take that with a grain of salt. We got a couple of speakers up. All right, we had two. BB, what's up, man? Did you mean to come up? Do you have any questions, comments, thoughts? Okay. Nothing, <laughs> nothing from that. Okay. What else we got on the table? This is a little bit non-market-based CK, but I wanted to pick your thoughts on this. And if you don't want to go there, this is cool. We can cover it another time, but maybe we spend five minutes on the ordinals debate or do we table that and cover it later? Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to, to bring it up. I think it's interesting. I've been seeing some very interesting posts on Twitter regarding what to do about ordinals and if ordinals are a good or bad thing. Do you or does Craig feel you know, like y'all have a good foundation to kind of give a quick elevator on explanation on what ordinals are. I can do that. Yeah, Craig got it. Yeah, I spoke with Casey a lot, Casey Rodmer, about ordinals. And this was before I knew anything about inscriptions and I was only familiar with the ordinal project by itself. And basically an ordinal number is like the order of something. So like first, second, third is like an ordinal number. And basically Casey's idea was that by ordering Satoshis based on how they were mined, you could create some type of collector mentality around Bitcoin. So basically like the first sat that is mined in a block is more rare than a different sat in the block. And the first sat that is mined after a difficulty adjust, adjustment is even more rare than a sat mined after a block. And then after a halving is even more rare than that. And so basically by ordering Satoshis, you could create this collector mentality by anybody who wanted to opt in. It didn't require a protocol change. It was just a way of looking at the Satoshis. What I didn't know when he was telling me all about that was that with Taproot, you could include extra data, which is what I see to be the majority of the debate is about these inscriptions, which is the extra data that you can then include with these potentially rare or epic Satoshis that come after a block is the first Satoshi after a block's been mined or a difficulty adjustment. And then from there, you can include like special art, which is the like inscription or NFT And so what I'm seeing the debate now is basically these inscriptions include a lot more data onto the Bitcoin blockchain, which then fill up blocks more quickly, which is great for miners because they can charge a higher fee, but it's also more data that people need to include in their full node. And it makes running a full node a little bit more costly. So this is, that's, my like high level overview of what ordinals and inscriptions are because there's a difference between the two and then the debate around them. So one of the things that I was talking to Alex Thorne today, we had, a, we had some lunch and one of the things that he pointed out to me that I hadn't really thought of before, it's a pretty great point, was that 
you know, so so Taproot, the upgrade, the Taproot upgrade, essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it allows for, uh, maybe it allows for the opcode limit to increase a whole bunch. Is that correct? Right. So you can include these pretty massive messages into the, you know, data into the Bitcoin blockchain. I think one of the things that I don't think was discussed kind of during the Taproot activation, and it seems like, you know, some of these like real in the know point developers either didn't discuss this, didn't address this. And, see, you know, seemingly it looks like they were caught off guard by this, you know, like Luke Dasher Jr. said, they're tricking the code, you know, the creator of SegWit, the SegWit implementation with these, you know, kind of ordinal JPEGs being included into blocks. Like, is this a, des- a design decision? Like, I'm not mess up. I'm looking for the right word. Is there something like that was missed here from a trade-off perspective, from a, you know, conversation perspective? Like, was there a reckless amount of due diligence that was not conducted? Like, what is... Because there's some pretty in- intensive debate here amongst some, you know, really convicted, you know, opinionated Bitcoiners, if you want to put it that way. Like, what's, you know, your guys' take on maybe the far extremes of both sides? Is this like, I don't think this is existential, in my opinion, but some, you know, some people certainly feel very strongly about it. So, I mean, I don't have a technical opinion here, but, you know, it, I would note that in hindsight, there are some Bitcoiners you consider you know, both recent soft forks, SegWit and Taproot to be a quote unquote attack on Bitcoin and Bitcoin's immutability. I've, you know, I've heard people talk about how Taproot in particular or speedy trial and the way that it kind of was a not super contentious and a relatively quick thing that got activated, you know, may have had some edge cases that were not well thought out. You know, that may be the case. And, you know, I'm not an expert enough to really comment on what that is. You know, kind of where I have been tipping my hat in the arena of ideas is that, you know, one, who are we to kind of dictate how someone uses Bitcoin, especially within the existing rule set? And how are we going to know, you know, what could or could not have been built off that? You know, I do see that there's something kind of beautiful about ordinals and that it looks within Bitcoin and, uh, and, you know, the inscriptions, which is more data attached to Satoshi's like relies on that ordinal system. So I do think that there's something kind of elegant and beautiful about it, but, you know, beyond that, you know, is adding JPEGs to the blockchain directly, something that is existential to Bitcoin. You know, I have no idea. Is that going to bring state attack? Cause there's unwanted files being added to Bitcoin. I don't know, but if Bitcoin can't survive a state attack because of that, you know, how is it going to survive a state attack, you know, when it's, you know, by nature trying to separate money from state? You know, I don't know. My, my general perspective is that, you know, if Bitcoin's incentives works, then it must remain permissionless. And, you know, we must continue to kind of operate within the active rule set. Yeah, I agree. I think it's not a it's not a bad thing that there's block space demand. I mean, it's kind of funny when people talk about, you know, Bitcoin block space, it seems like there's some like weird like double standards or triple standards around blocks, you know, block space as well as a lot of anxiety about the block space whether there won't be desire or need for it in the future or if there's going to be way too much and the system's going to, you know, be unusable. It seems like there's a, still a lot of anxiety and PTSD around around this within, you know, Bitcoin users. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. You know, a four megabyte block is certainly interesting. We'll see if that's kind of, it's not gonna be the norm because I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was like Luxor, I think took a no fee, basically full Bitcoin block. That was stuffed full of these ordinals for a huge NFT. So it looked like they were paid kind of not under the table, but separately for that because otherwise, you know, they're missing out on some fees. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops. I ultimately think that, you know, transactional use of Bitcoin, you know, really just the most pure form of money is, will be and is the dominant use case. And that all of the other things like, you know, data storage and, you know, JPEGs will get priced out, but we'll see. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that won't age well. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I saw the Luxor mining thing, and I was kind of following a thread with Marty Bent kind of calling them out and saying they weren't acting in the best interest of their miners and clients. Uh, they did say that they have a different payout structure. I need to dig into it more of like how they pay out their miners or people that point their hash at their pool. 
We are actually having a Twitter Spaces with them next Wednesday from 11.15 a.m. Eastern Time to 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. So really looking forward to that. Definitely going to be a topic of conversation, like asking them. It's going to be more of a mining and energy focus, but I definitely want to ask about that Ornals block that they got paid out for. And Dylan, to your point, there definitely was some, I don't want to say backdoor dealing, but they were like paid like off chain or, you know, not in that block kind of deal in order to include it, it seems. So definitely I'll get some answers for that next week. I think, well, in regards to Luxor, I believe that their FPPS, which is basically pays miners regardless of whether the pool finds a block or not, which is great for miners because it helps with the uncertainty of like when a block is found, but it is not necessarily great if you are including ordinal inscriptions that give you really high fees and you're not paying your miners for those fees. So it's just... I think some of the debate has been just around business practices with that specific deal. But I think the bigger debate is around like the node requirements and the storage requirements around nodes. Like Dylan brought up the four megabyte block. I mean, nodes are going to have to keep track of all that data. And so it, it increases the amount of data that they're going to have to hold. And that's, I think, where the where most of the debate is coming from right now. We're definitely going to have a lot more ordinal content on Bitcoin Magazine, as well as at the Bitcoin conference. You know, we're definitely working with the different players who are making moves in that space, as well as, you know, maybe having different perspectives and trying to learn as much about Bitcoin as possible and create great and educational content for the audience. So stay tuned for Bitcoin Magazine. Obviously, go to the Bitcoin conference in order to, you know, maximize your opportunity to just meet with and hang out with Bitcoiners, see awesome content. There's really something new and amazing for everyone at the Bitcoin conference. And it's like Twitter or Nostr in real life. So come hang out with plebs, get a job at a Bitcoin company. Every single Bitcoin company in the space is sponsoring or attending. And, you know, come hang out in Miami, thaw out from Bitcoin winter from this cold, real winter outside and, and enjoy a little bit of the heat in May. So I think we got like, what is it? Promo code BM Live. It's a good promo code to get 10% off. So uh, come see us at the event. Dylan's going to have a lot of great content. We're just talking about, you know, a cool panel that is going to pair Dylan with another amazing macro thinker. And yeah, the content, the venue space, the weather, all the above. It's going to be incredible. So see you there. My fellow plebs. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.